Father, we are so grateful for who you are. Thank you for your love, your kindness, your grace. Thank you for giving us another day of life, and thank you for, for calling us to worship you. Thank you for inviting us into your presence. God, we, we just want to recognize that this time belongs to you. And so, Father, would you take it? Would you speak to us as we open your word? Would you move in our hearts, challenge us, convict us, change us as we humbly uh, come to hear from you? Thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. 9 a.m. crowd, so good, to, so good to be with you. Would you grab your Bible and open up to Mark chapter 9? That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue just walking through this book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, so turn there now. And, and while you're finding that, I want to share with you a little bit from my high school years, a story back then, one of my favorite weeks of the year. It came up every year. During the summertime, there was one week out of the year that I looked forward to more than any other. It was a fabulous, glorious week of summer camp at Hume Lake Christian Camps. Have you been to summer camp? Can you relate? Yeah. Every year, our church youth group, I grew up in Sacramento, our church would go to Hume Lake for one week in the summer, and we'd be up there with a bunch of other churches and a bunch of other campers, and we loved every minute of Hume Lake summer camp. I mean, campfires, cabins with all your friends, staying up late, playing games, crazy sports and competitions and snacks and playing cards and making new friends and sharing memories, the occasional camp crush here or there. I mean, we had so much fun swimming in the lake, making s'mores, doing all kinds of stuff that campers do. And not only that, but there was a powerful spiritual element to the whole camp time because every day we had chapel, morning and night, where there would be this fantastic worship band playing worship music. And we hear these awesome speakers that were teaching the Bible and calling us to know Jesus more. And it was powerful. So not only was it fun, we looked forward to it every year, but also we really sensed that God was real and was doing something in our lives, and we loved it. And every year for the first time, there would be people that put their faith in Christ for the very first time. They heard the gospel, they saw who this Jesus was, and they said, I want to follow him. And every year, there were people of us, some of us that were already Christians, that remembered why. We remembered the beauty, the glory of the gospel, and we recommitted our lives to Christ. It was this powerful mountaintop experience. You ever been there or had that camp, a retreat of some kind where God just speaks to you and it seems like you can see him more clearly than ever when you're out of your element on the top of that mountain. We see something similar in the text here this morning as Jesus leads his disciples up a mountaintop and they experience something quite powerful. We read it the beginning of chapter 9, it says this. <clears throat> and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. 
After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. So it's a really interesting portion of Scripture. We see in verse 1 as Jesus is wrapping up his conversation with his disciples that we looked at in depth last week. Remember, he's explaining to them the nature of discipleship, and here's what it is going to look like to follow me. He says in verse 1, some of you who are standing here today will not die, will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come in power, which is kind of an interesting statement, and it's led some to think that this was some kind of failed prediction that Jesus made, that he said, hey, the kingdom is going to come in power. The disciples thought he was going to come back in their lifetime and establish the kingdom of God fully, but that didn't happen, and so this is some kind of failed prophecy. But I think if we look at the context, it seems like actually his words are fulfilled almost right away. If we look at the verses that come right after, because Peter and James and John, they do what? They go up this mountaintop with Jesus, and they do see with their own eyes a glimpse of the power and glory of Jesus and the kingdom of God on display in a way on this mountaintop. We see they go up the mountain in verse 2, and Jesus is transfigured before them, which is a word that we don't use very often today, if we're honest. We read that and we're like, well, what does that mean? His, his clothes became dazzling white. His appearance, in some way, changed in a pretty profound way, it says. His clothes began to radiate light. I mean, he himself is shining, dazzling in some way. His glory is, is manifesting in this, this brightness that the disciples see. And we're going to get to Peter's response in just a second, but let's skip over verse 5 and 6 and look at verse 7 really quick. It says, then while they're up there, this cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And so while the disciples are up on this mountaintop, they hear the very voice of God speaking to them, saying, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to the message of Jesus. It's this powerful mountaintop experience. Which leads us to ask, though, what does it mean? What does it all mean? All these signs, this vision, this transfiguration. Let's think about it a little bit together. In order to understand this, we have to know a little bit about the Old Testament. And one of the most significant events in all the Old Testament was the Exodus. Okay, remember the second book of the Bible, the story of the Exodus. Moses leads the people of God out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom and leads them towards the promised land, right? If you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt, it's telling that story, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go, right? I don't know that rhyme. Okay, so you know the story. They're slaves and God says, I want to bring my people freedom. I want to deliver them 
from the hand of Pharaoh and the oppression of the Egyptians, and I want to bring them into their own land where they can live in freedom and, and worship me. And while they're on the way from Egypt to the promised land, God meets with them in a special way at Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up on top of this mountain, and God communicates to him and gives him the law, the Ten Commandments, the covenant, the way that the people of God are to live, right, when they go into this promised land. Remember that? We read about it in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus. Stay with me here. This is all, it's all going to be connected. Exodus 24, verse 15 says this. When Moses went up on the mountain, this is at Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Okay, then a couple chapters later, Exodus 34, verse 19 says, When Moses came down the mountain, Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Okay, key passages from the book of Exodus. With that in mind... Let's come back to Mark chapter 9 that we're looking at today, our passage, and think about the connections that we see. First, Jesus and the disciples go up a mountain. In Exodus 24, we saw Moses goes up a mountain. Then verse 2, it says, after six days, Jesus and the disciples go up the mountain, which is really interesting because if you read through the book of Mark, maybe you've noticed this before, there's not a lot of uh, time indicators or timestamps. You know, Mark just says a lot of the times, immediately this happened, or then this happened, or then some more of this happened. And he's not really concerned with chronology and an exact uh, layering of the events. He's just saying, hey, here, here's what happened in general. But here, one of the only places in the whole book of Mark where he puts a, a timestamp on it, and in Mark chapter 9, he says, after six days, the disciples and Jesus go up the mountain. Which is interesting because in the passage that we just read from Exodus, it says that Moses is on the mountain for six days waiting before the voice of God comes, before the call of God. And then we also see in Mark chapter 9, there's an appearance of a cloud, similar to the Exodus passage, where God's presence is represented by this cloud. Then we see, of course, that God the Father speaks from the cloud in both examples. In the Exodus story, we see that from being with God, Moses comes down the mountain and his face is what? Radiant, it's shining, it's bright. And here in the chapter, excuse me, chapter 9 of the book of Mark, we see that Jesus himself is shining, radiant, bright, dazzlingly bright in his glory. So we see all these connections between Moses in the book of Exodus and Jesus in the book of Mark. And it's signaling for us something significant. Moses, excuse me, Jesus is doing something like Moses did. Jesus is in some way a, a Moses-like figure, which means even more. One more. Hang with me here, people. It's going to be, it's going to be worth it. Deuteronomy 18. Another passage from the Old Testament. Moses speaking, it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Again, this is Moses speaking. Prophet like me from among you, your from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. You see it? Moses is saying, there's going to be a leader that's going to come and lead the people of God, one like 
me. And when he does, he's going to have the very words of God, that passage goes on to say, and you have to listen to him. And we see here Jesus looking a lot like Moses with all the connections we just saw and the voice of God in Mark chapter 9 says, this is my son, listen to him. Interesting. All these connections between Mark 9, the transfiguration on the mountaintop, and the Exodus story in the Old Testament, which is saying something significant is happening here. Jesus is resembling in some way Moses, but he's an even greater Moses, which again leads us to the question, so what? What does this all mean? Let's think together again. What did Moses do in the Old Testament? Again, he led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt. He was the prophet that God used to bring freedom to deliver the people. And so in the same way, we see that Jesus is in an even greater way, a Moses-like figure. He's a, a deliverer. Like Moses, he leads the people of God out of slavery, but not slavery in Egypt or slavery to other human beings, but slavery to sin, slavery to death and sin and destruction. Jesus brings us freedom and leads us out of that place. We see that Jesus is even greater than Moses because in the Exodus passage, Moses' face was shining because he spent time with God, whereas here in Mark chapter 9, we see that Jesus himself is shining in his glory and radiating this beautiful, glorious light because he is God. And as if all of that wasn't enough, we see in verse 4 that Elijah and Moses appear up on the mountaintop, right? In verse 4, they're talking with Jesus. And these are big deals from the Old Testament. Moses, Elijah, these key figures. We've talked about Moses a good amount, but we see Elijah as well was this key prophet from the Old Testament that in common thought in the Jewish world, Elijah was going to return in some meaningful sense before the kingdom of God was ushered in, before God would redeem and restore his world. They were waiting for Elijah. And so both Elijah and Moses were these Old Testament figures that were pointing forward to the coming redemption that God would bring, the kingdom of God. And so as they're up on the mountaintop and we hear the voice of God affirming Jesus and Moses and Elijah appearing there, it's the stamp of approval signaling this is it. Jesus, his life, his ministry, his work, he is the redemption that God is bringing to the world. Which again, maybe still leaves us wondering why this all matters and what's the, the so what here. And you know, thanks for the Bible trivia, Pastor Man, and the Old Testament survey. Now I can you know, drop a few facts at a cocktail party and sound kind of cool and, and smart. Great, but you know, maybe you dozed off a little bit in the past few minutes and wondering why does this all matter? sounds so very old. It's a very Old Testament. It's very ancient. And it matters because, I mean, this is our family history, right? I mean, if we are the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ, this is our story. I mean, this is where we came from. This is, we've seen God working in the past. This is how we've seen him bring redemption, how he's prepared us to receive Jesus and trust in him. It's not like Jesus just 
helicoptered in in the first century and just like showed up on the scene and was like, trust in me for salvation. I don't know why they did an Arnold accent there. Um, but you know what I mean? He didn't just come on the scene from a helicopter and say, hey, trust me, Jesus saves, John 3.16, print the t-shirts. You know, I mean, it wouldn't have made sense. He, he prepared us. God has been working throughout history, through the Old Testament, to prepare his people and to prepare the world to see Jesus and to see how important and significant and beautiful and, and glorious this Jesus is. He's the true deliverer. He's the true king and, and savior. And this is the good news of the gospel that we celebrate every week here at church. This is the story that we remember every week, that God saves sinners through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our story. He's taken us and welcomed us into his family. Though we sinned and turned from him and wanted nothing to do with him and wanted to live lives our own way, he said, no, I love my world and I'll send my son to bear the sin of the world on the cross to, to die in their place. And through the work of Christ to free us from that if we would trust in him. And so we see just a, a glimpse of that on the mountaintop. Disciples see it. It's as if the veil is pulled back just a little bit. They can see the glory for a moment of Jesus. It's been there all along, but they can see it here, who he truly is. Then we see Peter respond, as he always does, speaking up, right? We love our brother Peter here, he's on the mountaintop, and then he says this, Peter said to Jesus, verse 5, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And it says in verse 6, he did not know what to say because they were so frightened. The disciples are in this amazement, this state of not knowing what's going on, and Peter does what Peter does. He just blurts something out and says, hey, uh, this is great, let's, let's, build some houses up here and we can, you know, hang out together. We'll, we'll, we'll set up camp, build some shelters for you three. And we don't know exactly what he means by this, but it seems like the essence of it is, hey, let's, let's prolong this experience. Let's, let's set up camp. Let's keep this thing going. You know, I don't, I don't want this to end because you guys are shining. Jesus, you're glorious. This is incredible. Let's, let's keep this thing going. I want it to last. Moses, Elijah, stay a little while. We've got some shelters we'll build for you. It'll be great. And so we see in, in Peter, in his heart, the, the same thought that was going through my head and so many minds of other high school campers at summer camp on the last night of camp. He goes, I don't want this to end. I don't want to go home. I don't want to go back down the hill to the normal, everyday life where there's challenges and struggles waiting for me? No, let's make this camp experience last just a little bit longer. Because it's so fun, this amazing mountaintop experience where we see God so clearly. It's so real, so powerful. I don't want it to end. Let's just stay up here. But we see that 
camp can't last forever. And the time on the mountaintop doesn't last forever. They have to head down the hill. And so they do. Verse 14, as they were, excuse me, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, heading back down, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Really briefly, this is just something we've seen before, right? When something amazing happens, Jesus tells his disciples to essentially keep it quiet, which sounds a little puzzling to us, but it seems like, again, he's trying to prevent uh, hysteria from breaking out and trying to prevent misinformation, misunderstanding from spreading. And so he says, don't share this with people because they won't understand yet. Wait until I rise from the dead, then you'll see the full picture. Then you'll be able to spread this message. So just hold on a little bit. And we see that uh, they actually listen for once. <laughs> Usually the people don't. They go and talk about it anyways. But here it says the disciples keep the matter to themselves. Then verse 11, they asked him, still walking down the mountain, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Again, don't want to spend too much time on this conversation here, but basically as they're walking down, the disciples are asking about Elijah. Again, in common thought for the Jews, Elijah was going to return and prepare the way for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, essentially, that has happened. Elijah has already come, and he's referencing John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist from Mark chapter 1? He came on the scene. He looked a lot like Elijah, and he was preparing the way for people to meet Jesus, calling them to repentance and calling them to faith and trusting God. And so Jesus is saying, Elijah has already come, but he didn't come in great power and strength the way that you expected him to. They did whatever they wanted with him. And remember, John the Baptist was killed. So he's saying, essentially, Elijah came, prepared the way, he was killed, and the same thing is coming for me. The Son of Man must suffer, verse 12, and be rejected. After that brief conversation, they arrive down the hill, back to normal life. And you see, as great and as glorious as summer camp was as a high schooler at Hume Lake, the same thing happened every year. The same thing. At the end of that glorious week, we would always go home every time. We'd get in the buses. We'd drive down the hill. We'd leave behind the campfires and the pranks and the new nicknames and the new friends that we met and the memories that we shared and the cute girls with their Bibles and all of it. And we'd go back home to normal life. We'd leave behind the twice-a-day worship services, the great speakers and the awesome worship band every single day and the scheduled quiet times in our Bible. We'd leave it behind and we'd go back to normal routines, school, family life, jobs, work, pursuing colleges, pursuing careers, and that spiritual high that we experienced at camp on the mountaintop would slowly fade away as normal life set in. Not because it wasn't real, 
Because that's not where most of life is lived. Most of life is lived down the hill. And it was hard for a lot of us students to continue following Jesus with that same sort of passion and commitment that we felt on the mountaintop. It was hard to keep that up once we got down the hill. Again, maybe you can relate with that. You had a time in your life where God spoke to you so clearly. Maybe it was at camp, maybe on a retreat, maybe when you were out of town. Maybe something special was happening in your life and you heard the voice of God in a clear and real way, but then daily life returned and settled in and things got hard. And we see this almost right away in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, Jesus and the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, come back down. They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with him about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So they come down the mountain from this glorious mountaintop experience and are immediately met with the sludge and challenge of life. Crowds, arguments, failure, struggle. This man has a son possessed by an evil spirit. And this is something we've seen before in Mark, the work of the enemy, a, a vivid reminder of spiritual realities at work in the world that go often unseen but are manifesting here, standing opposed to the work of God, working destruction in the life of this boy and this family. And the disciples are unable to drive out the Spirit. They fail in their attempt to minister to this family. And we see that it leads to frustration with Jesus in the next verse. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long Shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So you notice Jesus identifies the problem. They're unbelieving. They're, they're lacking faith. They're lacking basic dependence upon God. And that same problem is identified at the end of this passage. If we skip ahead to verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him, why couldn't we drive it out? And he says, this kind can come out only by prayer. And so we see with these disciples down the hill, this lack of faith and a lack of of prayer. Rather than relying on God and his power, they think that somehow they can handle the situation on their own. Maybe they're depending upon their own skills, their own techniques. You know, hey, we've done this thing before, Jesus, we know the drill, and they go for it, but they fail. It doesn't work. <coughs> How quickly we see, we're reminded that life is not lived on the mountaintop. Life down below is quite challenging, and we see in these disciples a bit of ourselves, if we're honest. If we're honest, we can reflect and think about probably our failures, our hardships in life, how we often lack faith, 
how we often lack prayer. If we're honest, most of our lives are probably not worthy of Facebook or Instagram. Most of our lives, we wouldn't want to post about, we wouldn't want people to see. Whether we're in professional ministry or whether we're raising our families or out at work in the business world, how often do we lack dependence upon God? How often do we lack prayer like these disciples? I mean, I know I do, both as a pastor and as just a person. I mean, this is a challenge for me. I'll notice myself thinking, I I got this, done this before, written sermons before, responded to hospital calls before, and there's this subtle arrogance that can come along if we're not careful. Sometimes I'll get halfway through a task or a situation, and I'll realize I haven't, I haven't prayed. I haven't invited God into it. I know, true confessions of a pastor. It's, it's a struggle sometimes, this lack of prayer. I see myself in these disciples. Henry Nouwen, Christian author, once said, we've fallen into the temptation of separating ministry from spirituality. And you can replace ministry with any number of things, work, family. We've separated it from spirituality. We've compartmentalized. We've separated service, he says, from prayer. And he goes on, our demons say we're too busy to pray, too many needs to attend to, too many people to respond to, too many wounds to heal. Prayer is a luxury, something you do during a free hour or a day away from work, or on a retreat somewhere. Don't we feel that so often? Prayer is a luxury. If I have time, if I could fit it in, or have some space set aside, I'll maybe handle it. But in the the hustle and bustle of life and parenting and work, where can I find time? But Jesus is showing us that prayer is not reserved for the mountaintop or the special occasion. It's to, to be with us every step of the way, like these disciples down in the challenges of ministry and daily life. It's a sobering reminder for us because sometimes, just notice, it's easier for us to respond to God in the big things sometimes than it is in the little things. You notice that? We get, we get hyped up about the stories of radical commitment to faith, people giving everything, all their money, and moving away as missionaries to follow Jesus. We get hyped. We love those stories. But sometimes we overlook the small steps of obedience that God calls us to every day. For example, if we had a a helicopter today land on our church lawn right there, and they were going to take us to North Korea, okay? Just picture this with me. We got a helicopter. They say, hey, we know this church, this group of believers in North Korea, they're being persecuted. They're facing opposition. They're discouraged. They need help. They need food and resources and supplies and Bibles. And they need encouragement and prayer from brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside them. We have this special relationship. We're going to go. We're going to go right now in a half an hour. We're loading up the helicopter. We're going to North Korea. It's not actually happening, just so you know. But picture it if it were. I bet you our church would be able to fill that helicopter up with willing people. I'd say, I will go. I'll respond to the call. This is big. This is exciting. This is sacrifice. Let's do this, Lord. You're worth it. Here we go. But I wonder, would the same number of people be willing to respond to the call 
to obedience in small ways in staying at home. You know, we're not going to go to North Korea on the helicopter, but I want you to stay here. I want you to trust me in your daily life here. I want you to read your Bible each day, spend some time with me in prayer. Could you do that for me? Could you see what I'd have for you here? I wonder why it is that we're more willing sometimes to jump for the big things rather than the daily times in prayer and scripture and responding to God, listening to him, trusting him. So I think we need to learn from the disciples here as we see them in everyday life, as we see them ministering and failing and struggling down from the mountaintop. We can learn from them. But we also learn from the desperate father in this passage that we haven't looked at very closely. We see him in verse 20. They brought him, the boy, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And so immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. So we see here things that we've seen before, the miraculous power of Jesus to confront and denounce the work of the enemy, forces of evil, spiritual realities. Jesus has complete power over them. We can take confidence in this fact. He heals this boy miraculously. And yet, I want us to look closer at the father in the story. He's desperate. His family is hurting, and the disciples have failed him. And so he comes to Jesus in verse 22 and sort of throws up his hands, right? If you can do anything, help us out. Your disciples couldn't. We don't see a lot of confidence in his response. And Jesus says, if you can, you know who you're talking to. If you can, everything's possible for one who believes. If you would trust in me, and then we see in this man some of my favorite words in the entire Bible. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. More literally, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love the honesty of this man and his words. I think they resemble our hearts so often, this combination of trust and doubt of, of faith and uncertainty. That's so often where our hearts are. We have this sense of, I trust you, Lord, but help me in the ways that I don't trust you. I believe, Lord, but my heart is still struggling to give this area of my life over to you, or I still have this doubt or this issue, Lord, but I trust you, but I love you. I want to follow you. Would you help me? And I think we can relate, and I think we can use this man's words here as, as a prayer for 
ourselves to pray this to God. Lord, I believe, I trust you, but help my unbelief. Help the parts of my heart that are still struggling. I think we can be honest and bring this to the Lord, and we see that this man does, and Jesus responds, and he heals him powerfully. Now, the last, the last night at camp at Hume Lake, or on the bus ride home, one of those two places, every year, our pastor or one of the volunteer adult leaders or one super spiritual high schooler that maybe irritated us a little bit would say something like, how are we going to keep this thing going when we get down the hill, guys? We're passionate about Jesus. How are we going to keep it up? The spiritual high is going to wear off. We know it's coming. It always does. It's a reality. It's not that what we've experienced up here isn't real, but how are we going to continue to follow Jesus when we get down the hill? How are we going to stay close to him when the campfires are gone and the cute girls with their Bibles and their quiet times are gone? How are you going to stay committed to Jesus? I think that's the same question that each of us has to answer today. Because life isn't on the mountaintop. We can see a glimpse of the glory of Jesus and hold on to that, but that's not where most of life is lived. Most of life is lived down the hill in the daily challenges. So when we're there, how do we stay close to Jesus? And we see in these verses, in this passage, the importance of faith, of prayer, of depending on God, being fully committed to him. And so that's my prayer for us today, that as we go out these doors, as we live our lives down the hill, we would trust in Jesus and remember that glimpse of glory and who he truly is. Let's pray.